0: Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. All right. Hey, uh, before we get uh, too far into the message, um, I, w- I wanna draw your attention to two things. Uh, first, you should have gotten one of these on your way in, uh, this kind of olive green, good-looking flyer we've got here. Um, we have more of these on your way out, uh, if you'd like them uh, to use as like invite cards or just reminders for yourself, whatever the case may be. It's got all the information about the launch month things that are happening, um, so go ahead and grab uh, as many of these as you'll use uh, on your way out and uh, can be a good way to invite people. Um, I want to just highlight two things that are going on that are actually on this card. The first is the Labor Day party. And uh, if you... Don't have any plans for Labor Day, this is a great, great option. Uh, if you do have plans for Labor Day, cancel them uh, because this is going to be better. Whatever lame thing you've got scheduled uh, needs to be canceled. This is going to be fun. We're going to be right here in the parking lot on Sunday evening uh, in lieu of service. Uh, we're going to have a party and uh, there'll be a food truck out there that we've paid for. So it'll be free tacos, uh, music, and games and all kinds of stuff. Uh, a movie in here for the kids at a certain point so that uh, we can hang out uh, in the parking lot. It's gonna be a good time. So uh, that's the first, that's Sunday, September 1st. And then the sixth is uh, an event we're calling Intersect, which is um, something that I was part of starting uh, actually at a previous church plant in San Francisco where we would do a couple times a year um, these kind of lecture Q&A things that we called Intersect because they represent the intersection of faith and life. And so um, we are bringing out uh, a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote a fantastic book called Confronting Christianity. Um, She is an English woman, uh, Cambridge educated, uh, super smart, super articulate, English, so she sounds at least 20 points smarter than she actually is, which is already super smart. And uh, she has just got a super interesting story, wrote this very winsome book. And uh, so she's going to come out and lecture. We're doing it at the Century Ballroom, which is just on the other side of the park here in the Odd Fellows building. Building, which is a great venue uh, just a fun it 's going to be a really fun night so we'll do uh, she 'll lecture we 'll do some text in q and a it 's a great event to bring uh, friends who are not believers but are interested in having some of that dialogue uh, it 's a great night to bring uh, Christian friends who are interested in those kinds of things and would want to learn and be stretched and informed by it uh, it 's just going to be a great time so all the registration for these things are going to be done on the app. So uh, you can actually register for Rebecca McLaughlin right now, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, Registration is live on that. So I highly recommend you getting tickets. We have, or we will be opening it up to some of the other partner churches we have in the area, Um, but we're giving you guys first crack at it. So I know downtown Cornerstone is going to send some folks uh, and others. So uh, so go ahead and register for that event, uh, not right now because I'm talking, but uh, later, uh, definitely do that. Okay, so those are the first two things, uh, and, uh, and honestly, the biggest thing that would make those things great is your presence and, uh, and your friends. So uh, go ahead and do that. Cool. Great, okay, uh, we are in First Corinthians. we have two more weeks in First Corinthians, so if you 'll turn to First Corinthians chapter thirteen, we are looking at the most Probably the most widely quoted passage in the New Testament, or certainly one of them. Uh, And uh, there's uh, there's an inherent challenge with passages like this. Um, Not that you 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 are going to feel bad for me necessarily, but I wish you would. Um, There are certain days, uh, like I, I, uh, this may sound weird. I don't like preaching Christmas and I don't like preaching Easter. Both of those days are the hardest weeks of the year to preach. Not that I don't like those holidays. They're great. But you know what's coming, right? There's no mystery. And so the challenge for me is to try to make Easter interesting while not Forgetting that it's about the resurrection, right? So, like, how do we do this? Well, this—a passage like this one, First Corinthians thirteen, where it's the love passage—you probably used it in your marriage in your marriage vows of, to some degree, if you are married, uh, and and if you haven't yet, you're probably planning to. Uh, don't because it's totally out of context, but that's fine. Um, but the, the challenge with the passage like this is it's about such a gigantic subject. Like love is just such a huge, complicated and and vast topic to try to do in uh, you know thirty five to sixty five minutes uh, is is just a challenge. And so um, I, I, uh, I I've been thinking about this week and thinking about the way the idea of love has changed in society, uh, just in my 40 short years on this planet, um, the idea of love and the definition, the way we talk about love and think about love, I have observed change. And so I want to talk a little bit about that um, and then get into the passage. Um, I, I think one of the ways that love was misrepresented as I grew up, kind of what I grew up with thinking about love was just romanticism right? Um, that love was about romance. It was uh, about affection and emotion and these kinds of things. And so uh, you had these, uh, you know, just there's a billion songs written about love. And so I grew up learning that all I need is love. And yet love is a battlefield. And uh, Jack White tells me that love is blindness. And all of these things that are just confusing. And you know, I wasn't totally sure what to make of them. And, and then, you know, Christianity kind of catches the wave of of romanticism. And so you get kind of the prom songs to Jesus kind of uh, genre of music. And this idea of Jesus is my boyfriend, and we talk about being in love with Jesus, which is just a, a personal problem for me since the Bible never talks about being in love with God in any way. Uh, and, and that's just problematic at a number of levels. Um, but I, I, I don't see culture talking about love quite that way anymore or certainly not as much. And, and there was this own kind of uh, challenge in that because it was a very shallow way to think about love, especially when we know that the scriptures tell us that God is love. And so we kind of connect these dots to go, well, if love is emotion and love is romance and God is love, then God just feels these emotions towards me. God has romantic feelings for me? I don't know, that's weird, I don't quite get that, but like, theres the, it kind of makes that love idea very shallow, and when God actually calls himself love, it makes God, in some sense, shallow. So there's been a shift in, in my adult life from kind of uh, talking about love in this romantic sense to talking about love in a more therapeutic sense. Or in, in, in love as affirmation, love as, uh, uh, as inclusion, love as uh, uh, acceptance, which is therapeutic language. And so some of these kind of memes change, and now we've heard things like uh, love wins, or my personal favorite, love is love, which <laughs> just couldn't say less, honestly. In fact, there's a, there's a restaurant right next to my office, and, and I, every time I walk by, the, they've got this little tagline, and it just infuriates me every time I see it, and so I've been waiting for a chance to mock it in a sermon, like Jesus would. It says, it says this, the beauty of love is the bounty of food what does that even mean? Like, that is just completely pointless and and nonsensical. The beauty of love is the bounty of food. That's just stupid. (laughs) Now now you share my angst. Every time you see that restaurant, you too will hate it. Um, So... even though the conversation has changed from romanticism to kind of therapeutic language, the problem remains the same, that either one of those conceptions of love is inherently shallow, it's conditional, it's behavioral, and at the end of the day, not biblical. And so, when, when love is such a massive theme in the scriptures, not just the thing that God calls himself, but is, as we'll see, really the kind of primary organizing principle of the scriptures, and perhaps of the universe, when we think of it in such shallow terms of romantic or therapeutic, then it, we, we kind of gut the word, and therefore the concept, and therefore our concept of God, in ways that are ultimately pretty destructive. So, this passage is kind of an interesting detour um, for paul so, if we 've tracked kind of his argument, this letter that he wrote to the Corinthians was written to the super dysfunctional church, and he 's correcting them in a number of ways, trying to bring them back to the gospel on a number of different issues of um, divisiveness around their preference for certain preachers over another, uh, divisiveness over marriage and sexuality and promiscuity, divisiveness, in just a, a million different ways. And in these last couple of sections, he's actually been talking about worship in the church. We've talked about uh, the Lord's Supper. We've talked about actual worship itself. We talked about spiritual gifts. And this little detour that Paul takes is essentially him saying, listen, you've messed up community. You've messed up preaching. You've messed up sexuality. You've messed up marriage. You've messed up communion. And now you've even messed up spiritual gifts. And he, so he, instead of like just Continuing through from thirteen or from twelve to fourteen, he stops and talks about what has to be the primary orienting principle of all of this stuff that, in fact, solves all the problems that they've been dealing with. So, in in a very real sense, First Corinthians thirteen is the hinge passage for the whole book, and so it's interesting that he doesn't get there until the third to last chapter but it really is the lens through which we're supposed to see the rest of it so let's jump in first corinthians 13 verse 1 paul says and he's just again been talking about spiritual gifts and you know one body many parts and all that stuff he says if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal So Paul is, is kind of borrowing on a bunch of the topics that they've just been talking about and saying, you could have all the gifts, all these spiritual gifts. You could have amazing spiritual gifts. You could have knowledge. You could, you know, the Corinthians prided themselves on being wise and knowledgeable. We dealt with that in some of the earlier chapters. He says, you can have all the knowledge you want to. You can have an amazing amount of faith, so much faith and prophetic power that you can move mountains, remove, actually remove mountains, not even just move them, but like make them disappear. And, and some of this is, he, he's, he's kind of exaggerating to make his points here. He says, listen, there's literally, I could give up my body to be burned, but if at the root of it, I do all these awesome things, but don't have love, then, I will, then Then, they gain me nothing, and he says, in fact, I would be nothing. So why is that the case? How, how can Paul say that these amazing things that would no doubt benefit so many great people if they aren't motivated by love um, would be essentially nothing? Well, because love is the fundamental animating principle of the universe, And it has been from the very beginning. In love, God created all things. In love, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. In love, he forgave their disobedience and didn't sever relationship with them. In love, he provided the law and the prophets. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he sent his son to die for us. In love, he draws us to himself. In love, he will return and set things back to rights again. And, and what does Jesus tell us are the two most important commandments, the two greatest commandments? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a reflection of God's nature, that God has existed for all time in perfect, loving community and therefore made us, as a reflection of himself, made for perfect, loving community. And this is what he made us for and what he calls us to. And so when he sees these, all these amazing things that he has given us the ability to do, to have this wisdom and have this knowledge and have these prophetic powers and whatever else, all of the things that he has given us to do, but devoid of the primary thing that matters to him most and is the fullest expression of his being, he goes, listen, you, you, you missed the whole point, You've got all these kind of secondary and tertiary things, but you have missed the primary point. And this is something that I think is interesting because it is what separates Christianity from all other faiths and philosophies. That no other faith and philosophy tells us that God primarily desires, that God's primary desire for us is to have relationship with us. That every other faith and philosophy sets in motion a a path or a way of being or a, a mode of living, and God stands back and says, I've shown you the path, now come to me. And God kind of waits at the top of the mountain or at the end of life, saying, If you are good enough, if you do it well enough, if you follow my rules enough, then I will be there waiting for you. And it's Christianity and only Christianity that says, No, God. God says, no, I, I'm not going to sit and wait for you. I'm going to come to you because I want to be with you. My, the, the greatest thing is not that you would live rightly and obey perfectly so that then I am your reward at the end. I am your reward at the beginning. And will walk with you through all of life, all of the hardships, all of the failures, all of the successes. I'm there because what I want most is not your obedience. What I want most is not your perfection. What I want most is you. And so we can do all of the amazing things and do all the moral things, but if we have not love, which is the kind of the foundation of our relationship with God, then God goes, "You're missing. You're missing the big E on the I chart. You're missing the point." And that's a, a, a significant piece of our discipleship that Paul looks at the Corinthians and says, "You're you're just missing." I'm, imagine I was uh, really kind of. Uh, studying or, or focusing on that last illustration that Paul says that if he gave up his body to be burned, like if he sacrificed everything, and there's some translation, interesting translation issues that go into that. And Paul's argument is basically like, even if I gave everything of myself but didn't have love, I, I gain nothing in it. And, and I read one commentator tell a story, and this is a fictional kind of allegory, but he said, imagine... Imagine that you and your family are in great need. I mean, you're just dire straits, completely destitute, in, in need of someone to come and save you deep in debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. You are on the streets, homeless, with no prospects for work, and, and some wealthy family comes to you and says, "Hey, I will provide for all of your needs. I will pay off all your debts." I will buy you a home. I will give you a job with a great salary. I will pay for all all of the health needs that you have. I will set you up for success. But on one condition, you have to know and you have to acknowledge to me that you know that I am not doing this out of love for you. Like I don't love you at all. Like I I kind of hate you. Because I see what you've done, and it's just despicable, the debt and the homelessness, and it's just, that's on you. Now, I'm going to solve this because I want to be in the Seattle Times. I I want people to know that I did this thing, and I could use the tax break, but I I just need you to know, I don't love you, I don't care about you, you just happen to be kind of useful to me. And, And I was thinking about, like, would I take that money? If that was my situation, and I was totally destitute and completely in need, and this person came to me and said, I'll take care of everything, but you have to know I hate you, and I'm just doing this for fame and for a tax break, would I take the money? And the answer is yes, definitely. <laughs> but, but there would be something missing in it. There would be something that, that just wouldn't quite sit Right? There would be something hollow about it. I would be deeply thankful to the Lord for his provision through these people, but I, I wouldn't think well of this person. So even though my material needs would be paid for and, and met and I'd be in good shape again, I, there, there would be just, an I think, an awkward, hollow, sick feeling in my stomach like I'm being used. Like, yeah, it benefited me, but, but I'm just being used. Um, Tim Keller, who was a pastor in Manhattan for a number of years, tells this um, allegorical story of um, a farmer who uh, raised vegetables and he had a, a, a carrot, a prized carrot that he grew and it was the biggest, nicest carrot that he'd ever grown. I, I don't know how big I'd imagine about that big. And, and uh, he brought it to the king and said, oh king, um, I, I have grown the greatest carrot I've ever grown before and I want you to have it, my king, uh, to honor you and, and to, uh, you know, to, to thank you for being a good king. And the king was overcome with thankfulness and said, wow, farmer, thank you for this wonderful carrot. Um, in exchange, or as, as a token of my appreciation, I'm going to give you these 20 acres next to your farm for, for you to farm as a, as a token of my goodwill. And the, the farmer was very happy about that, and he left and farmed the extra 20 acres. And uh, it, there was a, a man in the court who uh, raised horses, and he saw all of this happen and he thought to himself, gosh, if that's what you can get for a carrot, what could you get for a horse? And so he went back to his ranch and um, got his best horse and the next day showed up in court with the horse and said, oh, king, um, I, I, I want to give you my, my best horse, my greatest horse. I've raised this horse since it was young and it is, it is the greatest thing I own and I want to give it to you because you are great, oh, king. And the king looked at the horse and took the horse and said, thank you. Next. And he could tell the man was perplexed and disappointed and just realized he lost his best horse. And, uh, and, and the king said, do you have a question? And the man said, yeah, I mean, the guy yesterday brought in a carrot and gave you that carrot and you gave him 20 acres to farm and I'm giving you a horse, like this really great horse and, and, and nothing. And he said, here's the difference. The man yesterday gave me the carrot, But you gave yourself the horse. Because you the the man yesterday was actually giving me something out of a place of love and admiration and honor. You gave me something in hopes that I would give you something more. And for Paul, this is the difference between doing all of the greatest things in the world and doing them out of a heart of love. There's a a massive hole in the middle of the gesture that is what gives it its actual value and meaning. He continues in verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This, and I want to reread that passage with a little bit of commentary, but this is the kind of love that God self-identifies with. This is the kind of love when God says God is love through his scriptures, when he describes himself as love embodied, this is what he has in mind. Not some romantic idea of emotions and twitterpated and not some kind of therapeutic idea of acceptance and inclusion, but this, this vision of real, deep, divine love. And so he says love is patient, It understands that people don't change quickly, that you can rarely ask someone to take more than one step at a time, that as C.S. Lewis said, you have to begin where you are. He says that love is kind, that it chooses to speak with words and tone that put a person at ease and communicate that you are for them and not against them. He says that love does not envy Rather, it celebrates with people who are given much because love is born out of contentment and trust in the sovereign will of God. Love does not boast when it is given plenty because it understands that everything it has was given. And so thankfulness has taken all the room that boasting might have occupied. It says, love is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Why? Because love is rooted in the earned knowledge of its own faults. So it doesn't act as if others should be perfect. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love will always work for the sake of the good, and will uphold it even in the face of social or cultural opposition because love knows that wrong and right aren't just ethical categories, but reflections of God's very intention in creation. Love knows that wrongdoing brings suffering and that the truth brings life, no matter how awkward, uncomfortable, or unpopular that truth may be. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Not because it is naive or Pollyanna-ish, but because it refuses to submit to cynicism or give way to despair. Love knows that love itself holds the key to hope, that in the midst of the greatest darkness, it is love that provides the light. I read this passage in two ways. First, I want this so badly. I read a passage like this, and and my, my soul, my heart says, Yes, please may I experience that kind of love. Please may I experience that kind of relationship with another person that's actually patient and kind, that doesn't boast, or is arrogant, or is never rude. I want that. It feels like I was made for that. In fact, one commentator by the name of Stephen Um says this way. He says, maybe love is the primary game of our lives. Most of the time we strike out, but every now and then the impossible seems possible. And we catch a glimpse of love. And so we keep at it. Love shapes what we say. It shapes how we think. It shapes what we do. We stay up at night thinking about the people we'll encounter the next day. We hang on their words. We search their eyes. We measure their actions, all for signs of love. Because more than anything in the world, this is what we're looking for. I want you to say that you love me. And once you come to know me in all of my unacceptability, I still want you to love me. And then I want you to say that you love me again and again and again. And then I want you to prove it, to prove that you're not going anywhere, to prove that this isn't a game, but that what we share is in this life or death kind of category. It's in the until death do us part category. And then I want you to promise that it will never go away. My, my greatest fear in life is that Emily, my wife, Emily, will stop loving me. And, and, and not, not because she's ever given a hint that she would or a, a there's any reason that she might, but that is my greatest fear in life is to lose Emily's love. Because I so value it and I know how much I need it in my life. That to lose her love, to if I do anything, I just I don't trust myself to not do something stupid enough to lose her love. There's a there's a really um, dumb song by Bruno Mars, <sighs> and I, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's it's uh, talks about her, uh, his girl is dancing with another man. Do you know this song? When I was your man, when I something like that. I can't even listen to it. It came up, we were driving the other day, it just her and I, and it came on, and I pre- I hit next. And, and she goes, well, I love that song. And I said, I hate that song. Because I am so deathly afraid that one day I will be crying myself to sleep with Bruno Mars on repeat <laughs> Because I didn't hold her hand, I didn't take her dancing, I didn't do whatever all the things are in the song, and I just know that I'm dumb enough to be the guy who has to listen to that song for the rest of his life. That's my first thought. That I, I want this kind of love so desperately that there's just something in me that tells me it's what I was made for. My second thought is this. I could never actually pull this off, and I'm I'm suspicious that I could ever actually experience it with another person, that somebody around me would actually be this way with me all the time, and I'm suspicious that I could ever, in fact, I'm positive that I could never actually love this way, not consistently, right? Right? Like it, just, it seems too good to be true, and experience tells me that love is conditional, that love is fleeting, that love is emotive, that people say they love something, and then they change, and they move, and they shift, and I can't depend on their love. So it feels like we have two choices. One, we can redefine love the way it seems as if culture often does, redefine it in a way that seems more attainable and more realistic but is functionally lowering the bar. Or we can seek a way to make this version of love real. Um, A woman named Barbara Fredrickson, who's a psychology professor at University of North Carolina, wrote a book called Love 2.0, in which she sets forth, uh, it's kind of an experiment in redefining love. And, And she redefines love in this way. She says, love is that micro moment of warmth and connection that you share with another living being. Love is an emotion, a momentary state, Right now, she says, right now, at this very moment in which I am crafting this sentence, I do not love my husband. Our positivity resonance, whatever that means, our positivity resonance, after all, only lasts as long as we two are engaged with one another. The same goes for your loved ones. Unless you're cuddled up with someone reading these words aloud to him or her right now, you don't love anyone. So that's one way to go. Now, m- most of us would not affirm that this is love. We would not kind of sign on to a vision of love, even as more realistic as it may be, that so denigrates love down to a micro moment that is functionally, functionally saying love is only the thing you feel in the moment when you're actually doing something. It's behavioral and it's emotive put together and it's micro. The moment that feeling of warmth goes away, you don't love anymore. It goes completely away. And most of us wouldn't sign up for that, but we do sign up for overly romantic or therapeutic visions of love where we just do the same shallow, hollowing out thing where we make it something so much less important than it is. This, our culture's vision of love cares nothing of the truth, nothing of health or life, And it ignores every instinct that God has given us that something is deeply wrong and broken in the world and in need of fixing. Because if love is primarily saying, you're okay, you're included, you're accepted, I affirm you as you are, it is baked into that sentence saying, you don't need to change, there's nothing wrong with you, therefore there's nothing wrong with the world, everything's okay, which is okay to say from a position of great luxury and power and affluence and wealth but becomes far more difficult to say to the face of someone who has endured and enduring actual suffering because they'd go, actually not everything's okay. And your, uh, your vision of love crumbles away very quickly. But see, biblical love, divine love, names what is wrong and steps into that anyway. Paul says as much here in our last passage, verse 8. He says, love never ends. Now, I have to kind of tell on myself a little bit here. When I was in college, I read that verse, love never ends, and I thought, okay, that means I'm never going to tell a girlfriend that I love them because then if we break up, I'm a liar, because my love has ended. And so I'm only gonna say I love you to the girl I marry, right? And like on our wedding day, I'll say I love you because then that's forever. And then I met Emily and I think on our second date, I told her I loved her. So that didn't last. She told me she loved me too. And then like three hours later was like, yeah, so uh, that thing I said, maybe not. Like, ooh, awkward. (laughs) Not my best moment. Paul's saying there's a a way to conceive of love that is ultimately childish and immature. When we try to make love something that is easy, when we make it something that's shallow, when we make it, we try to make it uh, our definition of love match our experience of love. And, and therefore have, have no, uh, no sense of uh, a desire for something more, expectation of something better. We're acting like children. We, we talk about and we act in ways that are immature. And this, for Paul, applies across this whole letter. That in their division, in their uh, greed, in their sexual immorality, in their marriage problems, in the way that they've done Lord's Supper and dealt with spiritual gifts and all of the things, he's saying, listen, you you are coming to these things with a basic immaturity. You're thinking like a child. And as someone who has children, this is not a compliment. Like we, we talk about children are innocent. No, they are not. Children are awful. Like, from from a very early age, I mean, we love them, children in the room, (laughs) but but from a very early age, they are not innocent. My 18-year-old son yesterday um, had a baseball bat in the house, and he's banging it on the ground, and I looked from across the room, I said, Will, no, put the bat down. And he looked at me, he gave me this face, put the bat down, walked directly over to me and hit me. He's 18 months old. His four-year-old sister wants to hug him all the time and will kind of relentlessly go, Will, can I have a hug? And this is what Will does. He walks up to her and then turns right at the last minute. There's nothing innocent about children. This, This is one of the harshest critiques that Paul could level against the Corinthians, that they're acting like children. He says, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Uh, Paul foresees a day where our limitedness will go away, where our childishness will go away. And we will see fully both ourselves, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, and so we have kind of a false conception of ourselves, and we will see fully each other, and we will see fully God himself, that we will be face to face with God. And then he says, and this is the money quote of the whole passage, he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known this is the key. Paul says, there will come a day down the road where I can finally see. I'm blind now. I see dimly. I'm immature. I deal with the world like a child. I'm selfish like a child. I I, I don't love like a child. I don't give like a child. I don't sacrifice like a child. I do sacrifice like a child, which means not at all. I'm I'm immature. I, I don't do any of this right. Someday, God will grow me up. Someday I will see him. But here's the key. He says, someday I will see and I will know even as I have always been fully known. And this is the great promise of the gospel. That God knows everything about you. That nothing is hidden from God. He has seen to the depths of your heart He has seen to the depths of your mind. He has seen every action. He knows every thought. He has heard every word. There is nothing hidden from God. And if you are like me, or if you're just honest with yourself, that is a terrifying thought. I am terrified by that thought. Because I have 40 years of sin that I have hidden and I have protected and I have tried to pretend like it doesn't exist and I have personally tried to overcome that I have repented for but not repented for deeply enough. There is all kinds of things going on in here that I don't want you to know about but God does. And here's my fear. The reason I don't want you to know about it is because I don't believe you'll still want to follow me. I, I don't think you'll still want to come to my church. I don't think you'll want to be my friend. I don't think you'll want to even be near me. That's my fear. And it's probably not wrong. If I knew everything about you, if we just started going around the room telling all the things, it'd get bad quick. Quick. Because our love is almost always conditional. There are limits. There's always somebody, there's always something we're not willing to forget or forgive or overlook or understand. But God has fully known us our whole lives. From before we were born, he knew everything we would say, everything we would do, everything we would think. He knew it all, and he went to the cross anyway and died. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the only hope we ever have to actually walk out this biblical vision of love. The only hope we have to actually love the way we're told to love is if we first understand that we have been loved the way the Bible tells us to love that God has been patient with us, he has been kind to us, he has not envied or boasted or been arrogant or rude. God has fully embodied this vision for love for us, that we are fully known in him. In fact, the, the song that Che uh, sang for us, It Is Well With My Soul, one of my favorite lines in any song is in this, in this song where he says, my sin... Oh, the joy of this glorious thought. Like the writer takes a whole line just as an aside. He, ha- he can't even finish the thought. He has to go, oh my gosh, this glorious thought. I, can't, I have to put my feelings about this thought into the song. My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That all of it has been paid for. That God's love has been poured out for us on the cross. And these these shallow understandings of love actually negate the cross. They have no room for the cross. These therapeutic and romantic visions of love have no room for the cross because the cross does two things at the same time. It names the ugliness as ugliness and at the very same moment demonstrates love and whatever kind of love can't name ugliness is a shallow hollow conditional love it's a love that can only exist in the absence of ugliness or 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 or, or in the obscurity of ugliness or in pretending that ugliness isn't ugliness and naming it something good. And that's the only way that kind of love can exist. And in so doing pushes aside the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever known. See, all of the ways we mess up love and we make love about affirmation or we use love for manipulation or we are seeking inclusion or acceptance or emotion or whatever it is, all of it is rooted in a desire to get something that we have already been offered in God's love. And so it is when we understand what we have already been given and that we rest in that and fully embrace our fully knownness and at the same time fully lovedness that we can then not need anything from the people around us and just love them patiently and kindly. This is the offer of the gospel. This is the call of the Christian to embody the kind of love we have already received. Let's pray. Jesus, we are deeply thankful for the example that you have given us of what love is, but that your example is secondary to the power that was poured out on the cross. That the example would just be, it would be mockery without the power of the cross. And so it is the great love that flows from your wounded side that empowers us to be able to receive and give love. God, I pray that you would give us a profound sense of your love for us so that we wouldn't go around needing and hunting for affirmation from other people and other things that we would be fully secure in your love and able to give ourselves away freely and fully as an expression of your love and grace for your world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, we'll uh, take a couple of questions here. Um, First one is this, what is a kind and truthful way to deal with the cultural proclamation that true love wouldn't exclude or tell anyone they are wrong? How do we accept and love others well and hold on to the truth of the Bible? Um, this is a fantastic question and I think a really practical one that we deal with um, on, a, on a regular basis. So there's kind of two questions baked into there. One is, um, what's a kind and truthful way to deal with the cultural proclamation that true love wouldn't exclude or tell anyone they are wrong? Um, I, I'll start by saying this. One is um, kind and truthful are not opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Um, t- kind and truthful are, are not mutually ex- exclusive, right? We can do those together. And um, kindness oftentimes can be read as simply like smiling when you tell the truth and, and doing this. I, I've uh, had coaching with this, uh, how to do this. Face coaching, I call it, uh, to how to not look angry when you say nice things. Um, people, it's funny how you go when when you tell people you love them, but you do it like this. They don't read that as love, uh, oddly. And so, um, one of the things that we we can do is just honestly, like. Be really aware of our posture and aware of our faces and aware, aware of our tone of voice and aware of the, the, the kind of concern that we are communicating uh, to the people we talk to. Like, we we shouldn't have a mode that is acceptance is nice and then truth is stern. Like, that's not at all uh, what, what needs to be. So I think we can just pay attention to our the way we talk to people. Um, but I would also say... Um, no one actually believes this, right? Like nobody in our culture actually believes um, that true love wouldn't exclude or tell anyone they're wrong. Nobody actually believes that. And it doesn't take a lot of questions to get to a point where you go, okay, so we we don't actually think that nothing is wrong, right? Like there are some things that are wrong, and everyone will agree. And if they don't, then punch them in the face and go, "Okay, was that wrong? Right?" You know, and and um, don't do that. Uh, but if you do get video, um, so nobody actually believes that. So you know, let's not set up uh, unrealistic kinds of uh, expectations or unrealistic scenarios that people aren't actually um, experiencing so um, I would say that we should never exclude people from community for disagreeing with us like that that should never be a practice um, amongst Christians that we wouldn't be friends with someone or we wouldn't interact with someone uh, we wouldn't include someone in our lives uh, because they disagree with us about even the most significant issues right like uh, there's just kind of nothing there that would should cause us to exclude people. Um, but, I, but I just don't think people actually uh, think that true love just is good with everything. Um, there are, everyone has limits. And I think it's exploring where the actual differences in those limits are um, that can be really helpful. And to ask people like, hey, um, you think these things are good and these things are not good. Why? Like, what makes you think that these things are good and these things are not good or less good even? Uh, Like, by what measurement? Like, what what makes you think that these things are okay? Um, And and actually kind of try and put the ball in their court and and be curious about how they conceive of the world um, is a a really helpful way to kind of build rapport as well. Um, And then how do we accept and love others well and hold on to the truth of the Bible? And again, like, the bible contains the the truest and best common ground of any faith or philosophy because the Bible teaches that we are all made in the image of God, and that there's no amount of behavior, there's no physical nothing, nothing. There is absolutely no category of a thing that makes me made in the image of God and someone else not made in the image of God, right? That is even historically the foundation of Western civilization's uh, advances uh, 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 for human rights, like The reason why the West excels in human rights more than other cultures is because of this theological idea rooted in the Bible, okay? So we shouldn't have a problem um, kind of treating others well, loving others well, and holding on to the truth because we believe that they're made in the image of God. And just because we disagree about something doesn't mean we wouldn't love them or wouldn't be with them in any kind of helpful way. Uh, All right, next In the story of the man who offered the horse to the king, the man really only wanted more for himself. How do we pursue God's love without it being a selfish pursuit for something better for us? In other words, how do we genuinely pursue God without a focus on the reward? This is a great question. And the truth of it is, you won't right? Like, let's be realistic. You won't. We will always, because we are sinful human beings, we will look for things from God. We will treat God as a vending machine. We will do the right things and perform the right process so that God gives us the Cheetos we deserve, right? Like, that is our default mode of interaction. That's, that's religion in, in, in a nutshell, right? Like, that we do the right things, put in the right amount of quarters, and then we deserve our, our Cheetos. Um, that's That we have to fight against with every fiber of our being. And and the best way I know how to do that is is this. Um, And and I'm going to borrow from Lewis, C.S. Lewis, uh, old Jack, uh, uh, on this one. uh, And paraphrase him. Because the greatest thing that we are offered is not any blessing in this world, any opportunity that we have. The greatest thing that we have been offered is God himself. So any, any lesser gift, any lesser reward, anything that we are going to God for is a lesser gift than God himself. And so as Jack said, while we are offered a holiday at the sea, we settle for making mud pies in the slum, right? We are content with food and drink and sex and, and, and petty ambitions while God himself is on offer to us. And so I would say that the best way to keep from going to God for things is to realize that all the things God gives, even the greatest gifts of God, are less than God himself. So if you're going to go to God selfishly, go all the way. Be the most self-absorbed and self-interested and selfish you can be, which will put you at the feet of God, because that is the most self-interested place to be. Make sense? sense? Either way, we're done.